pastors here, and uh, we're glad that you're joining us this morning, especially if you are a uh, visitor. Uh, thank you for giving up uh, five hours of your Sunday morning on your day off. Just kidding. It's, it's definitely not five hours. But anyway, welcome to our church. We are glad that you are here uh, this morning, and happy birthday. If you're a part of Hiawatha Church, happy birthday. Uh, we have officially become teenagers, and I, I don't really know what that means. Maybe we can see, we can show different clips now. We can show PG-13 clips. I, I don't know. I, I didn't think that through before I said that. But anyway, happy birthday. Uh, I want to invite you, even if you're brand new today, come to Lake Nokomis with us. We're having a big birthday party, starting with baptisms, ending with uh, great food, lots of birthday cake. So we'd love to have you come join us. Uh, right now we are uh, nearing the two-thirds point of a sermon series in, ooh, look out. Uh, a sermon series in the book of Acts. So if you don't know about the book of Acts, it's in the New Testament. So it comes after Jesus shows up. And uh, at the very beginning of the book, Jesus is uh, resurrected after his crucifixion. He sends his Holy Spirit into his people. And he says, you're going to take this good news about what I just did, my death in your place for your sins, defeating uh, Satan's sin and death, resurrecting, showing that he has power and vindication over all that. And uh, you're going to take that news and you're going to spread it uh, not just here in Jerusalem and not just Ju Judea, the region, but to the ends of the earth. And we've been seeing that for the past uh, many months in the book of Acts. So when we pick up our, our story today, we're going to see uh, a bunch of dif different Christians in a, a few different cities. And we're going to see uh, the reality that they need each other. Even though these Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit, even though they've been gifted, even though they're talented, even though they're courageous at times, we're going to see over and over again that they need each other. So this morning, our sermon's entitled, No Lone Rangers in Ministry and in Mission. And uh, if you don't know what a Lone Ranger is, I guess he was a comic book character and uh, yeah, kind of dating myself, but no Lone Rangers. So we're going to see both in, in ministry, so Christians uh, encouraging each other, teaching each other, other believers, as well as in mission. So trying to spread the gospel to others. Uh, we're going to see that the church needs each other. Individual Christians need each other. We're going to see this in many different ways. We're going to see church planters and missionaries not being able to do it all by themselves, but needing other Christians as well as ascending church and vice versa. The sending church needs church planters and missionaries and, and ministers to send out. We're going to see a husband and wife team that works together, that does ministry together, that needs each other, that works off each other, complements each other really well. We're going to see this rock star preacher guy show up. And even though he, he's very persuasive, very powerful, very influential, he's going to need other believers to step in and correct them. And we're also going to see a bunch of new churches that are just a few months or even a few years old need other Christians to come encourage them and strengthen them. So we're going to see today that even though it is fun to run solo sometimes, to embrace the American dream of individualism and freedom from anyone telling us what to do or freedom from needing anyone, we're going to see that the reality is as humans, we need each other. As Christians, we need each other. We're designed to be in community and not to be independent, but rather interdependent. So not just uh, needing each other, but also needing God and the church. So let's pick it up. We're going to be reading in Acts uh, 18, verses 18 through 28. We're going to kind of break it up into, into two chunks, because it's kind of two related stories, but they, uh, there's a nice little break in the middle. So let's start by reading Acts 18, verses 18 through 23. It'll be on the screen behind me, and it's also uh, on the inside of your worship folder if you want to follow along. So after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and sisters and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centrea, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a long period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you, if God wills, and he sets sail fr uh, from Ephesus. And when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all 
the disciples. So if you remember from last week, Paul was in a a new city called Corinth. He preached the gospel. Many people were saved. He uh, found a a new couple there, Priscilla and Aquila. We were introduced to them last week, and they're a big part of our passage here today. So Paul takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. He brings them along from Corinth across a sea now to this new city called Ephesus. So they stop in this city. You maybe have heard that word Ephesus before. One of the books of the New Testament is written to the church that will be started in this city. So the book of Ephesians is written to this church uh, in the city of Ephesus. And this uh, city will actually, we'll learn more about it later, but it's going to become this, the, sta- the staging ground or the, the ministry center for Paul uh, in a huge chunk, years and years of his third missionary journey. So he's wrapping up his second right now. He's about to start his third, and Ephesus is going to become very important over the next uh, few chapters. We will see that um, a little bit later. So Paul shows up like he does in every city. He preaches the gospel. The spirit moves in many people's hearts, and they are curious. We don't quite know how many people get saved right here at, at this time, but we see that they're curious, that they hear the gospel, that the spirit's moving in powerful ways, and they want him to stay. But Paul knows that he must leave. We don't know exactly why, but he's convinced that he must leave. He must go back to, the, back to Jerusalem and then back to Antioch, the church that initially sent him on this church-planning missionary journey. But uh, Paul leaves this uh, influential couple, this couple that we met last week, Priscilla and Aquila. He leaves them there in Ephesus to encourage the church, and then Paul is moved by the Spirit to move on to some new cities. So Paul now returns back to Jerusalem. So if you like maps, hopefully this is a little bit helpful. So last week they were in Corinth. Paul met Priscilla and Aquila. Then in our, chapter, or our passage today, Paul takes them across the sea to land in Ephesus. And then uh, Paul leaves Aquila and Priscilla here in Ephesus and then heads back to Caesarea and then down to Jerusalem and uh, meets with the church there. And then he goes back to Antioch. So Antioch was the city here in Syria where this, uh, actually his first missionary journey, his first church planning journey, and his secondary journey. So it's, it's a church that initially sent him out. The church had sent him out with prayer and resources and some of their own people to go on this journey. So Paul returns to Jerusalem, then back up to Antioch, and he ends his second missionary church planting journey. So he's back where he has started in this city of Antioch, where both his church planning, both of his church planning missionaries begun. We're reminded by Luke, uh, the author of the book of Acts, about the importance of this church in Antioch. Paul wasn't just a churchless Christian, a lone ranger missionary and church planter, even though a lot of the book of Acts, we kind of see that, right? We see, even though Paul maybe has Silas or Timothy or Barnabas, with him, we see most of uh, the words, the passages, talk about Paul doing these amazing things. But again, here in Acts 18, we're reminded by Luke, the author of Acts, that, that Paul was not a churchless Christian. Not only did he deeply love and care for all these churches that he planted, but he was also sent out of a local church. He was prayed for. He was commissioned. He was given resources by a local church, and he returned to a local church to tell them about everything that God had done through him. All the people that were saved, all the churches that were planted, and he encourages and strengthens this church. So despite what we might think, Paul's motto on this church planning journey, or on his multiple church planning journey, his motto was not just Jesus and me, but rather he was one who was deeply connected, not just with the churches he planted, but with the churches that sent him, that partnered with him, the churches that prayed for him, supported him, and commissioned him. And we continue to see that church planting, global missions, etc., are costly. This church in Antioch had to sacrifice deeply. They sent some of their greatest leaders, some of their uh, people that were their uh, older brothers or their uh, fathers in the faith. They sent lots of their resources and money in order to make this these uh, two we've seen so far two church planting uh, missionary type journeys happen the first one took two years this last one took three years so the amount of resources and money and prayer and encouragement that it took for paul to do this was huge and this church in antioch is doing a great uh, a job with that and we see this play out in our story 
here today. We see this church sacrificing in huge ways for the sake of important, meaningful, and eternal rewards of starting new churches, declaring the gospel in new places, and disciple, or making disciples of all ethnicities, all languages, all tribes, and all nations across the ancient world. And just like that, Paul's second missionary journey ends and his next one begins. So Paul shows up at Antioch. He reports all that's happened the past three years in his last uh, church planning journey. And then immediately they send him right back out. So the, the verse 23 uh, is where his third church planting uh, journey now begins. So after spending some time there with the church in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through these two regions that we've seen before, especially in his first church planning journey. And he goes with the desire to strengthening all the disciples. He wants to go back to these young churches that are just a few months or just a few years old and strengthen the believers that are within them. So Paul begins his third church planting journey, leaves now from Antioch, the city he just went back to, and then goes through these two places that we just talked about, these, these different regions, and strengthens all these churches that he, uh, by the power of the Spirit, has planted and had begun. So as I was uh, reading and prepping for this passage, seeing what Paul was about to do, seeing that Paul was about to take another journey, and that he was going to tell Christians to not stop believing, I told Peter, I said, hey, I got a great song for offering. Don't stop believing by journey. But... Uh, it was too late in the week, so he had already picked a song. So anyway, but that's what Paul's doing. That's what his third pl- church planning journey is going to be all about. We'll pick that up throughout the next few weeks. But Paul remembers, so as he's leaving Antioch now for the third time, he remembers Jesus' teaching to the disciples. So right after Jesus, his, uh, right, right after his resurrection, right before he ascends to go, be, uh, to go back to be with God the Father, he tells his disciples in uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, He tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. So Paul knows that making disciples is not only conversion. It's not only that first part. When Jesus tells his disciples to go make more disciples, he doesn't just say, go make disciples, preach the gospel, baptize them, and then wash your hands of them and say, well, good luck. Hopefully they make it. Rather, making disciples is both conversion, right? We see people believing and being baptized, but it's also, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. It's, It's sanctification. It's helping people grow and mature in their faith. So Paul knows that. He knows that these churches that he has started need encouragement. And by God's grace and through the power of the Spirit, these churches are still growing. It's not as if once Paul leaves, they're just dying automatically. But Paul knows that they need encouragement. They need teaching. They need leadership. They need strengthening. It's not enough to just get someone to repent and to believe one time. But rather, together as a church, we need to encourage people. We we ourselves, people in our churches, we need to hear the gospel over and over and over and over again in order to... Uh, persevere to the end. And so Paul sets out to do that. He sets out with the goal of strengthening the disciples in these churches. And then, while Paul is ending his second missionary journey, starting his third missionary journey, we kind of get this, uh, we, the, Luke kind of turns the camera back to this city of Ephesus and says, while Paul is finishing his second journey, starting his third, this is what's happening back in Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. So maybe it's kind of like us uh, hearing, as Paul's doing uh, his new church planning journey. Meanwhile, back in Ephesus, this is what happens. We see this new guy show up, this kind of rock star person that's got this uh, uh, very attractive personality. He's a powerful communicator, and we're going to see how he interacts with Aquila and Priscilla, the, the Christians that were left by Paul in this city. Let's wrap up our passage by finishing the uh, chapter 18 verses 24 to the end of the chapter. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. 
He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, or some translations say being fervent in the Holy Spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately. And when he wished, speaking of Apollos, when he wished to cross back to Achaia, uh, so that's the, the region or the island that Corinth is on that we learned about last week, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And he arrived. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For uh, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. All right, so before we start to talk about Apollos, this new character that uh, gets introduced here, let's first look at Priscilla and Aquila, this couple that we met last week, probably a, a middle class or even a wealthy couple that have their own business, probably a leatherworking or tent-making business. If you remember back in Corinth, Paul meets them uh, when he goes to the, the city of Corinth by himself. They provide probably a job for him as well as a place where he can stay and work, and they're this really great couple. And now we see even more about their story here today. So let's focus on this uh, incredible couple that not only gives us a great example as Christians, but also just this couple resembles Jesus in every single thing that we do and or every single thing that we see here. And so let's first look at Priscilla and Aquila and see this important ministry, this fruitful ministry that they have as a team. Remember our a sermon title today is that we need each other, that there's no Lone Ranger Christians, that we need each other. And we see this play out with this uh, couple really well. So the first thing that we see is that Priscilla and Aquila, they are a married couple. Every time we see them mentioned, so I think they're mentioned in the New Testament six times, every time they're mentioned, they're mentioned together as a couple. So they're a married couple. They do ministry together uh, as a couple. And so we see the powerful way that, that people can use this relationship that, that many people have, this relationship of marriage, not just for themselves, but also use that relationship for ministry. So uh, relatedly, my wife and I, we get to do lots of ministry together, just like Aquila and Priscilla. Whether it's having people over for dinner and showing hospitality or generosity or kindness, or whether it's teaching a class together or a seminar, doing ministry together is incredibly meaningful, and it's also incredibly fun. Not only is it valuable to build up the church and other Christians, it is powerful to be able to do something spiritual and meaningful that has eternal consequences and significance together along with your spouse. And it allows us to complement each other in our weaknesses. What, my, uh, what, what I am weak in, my wife is strong in, and in vice versa. So when we do ministry together as a couple, we're able to do ministry even better because we complement each other and help each other out in where we are weak. And even just on a relational level, on a marriage level, doing ministry together lets us see the unique ways that God has gifted and empowered our spouse, which is great. For me, it is incredibly encouraging and inspiring and attractive to see my wife used by God in all different kinds of ministry, whether it's teaching or leading or hospitality or generosity or wisdom, or, or, or so much more. So we see this also with Priscilla and Aquila. They're able to do ministry together as a married couple. And so how do they do ministry together as a couple? They do it as a team. They use their home for ministry in multiple ways. We know throughout the New Testament that they host multiple churches in their home in multiple different cities where they end up living. They use their resources and their home for ministry together. Also, in our passage today, they probably brought Apollo into their home. That's probably where they instructed and corrected him, was in their home. And they're not seeing their possessions or their wealth as their own, but rather they graciously and generously use them to strengthen up other believers in their church. Priscilla and Aquila's ministry is also quiet, yet incredibly vital. It's quiet. It's not... Uh, throughout the whole Old Testament or New Testament. It's not filling the pages of Acts. They don't have microphones or, or stands. They're not incredibly popular in the cities that they're in necessarily, especially compared to some other characters in this story. 
yet their ministry is incredibly vital. In fact, when Paul writes about these two, he writes to the church in Rome, and they at this time are in Rome, he writes about how much he values their quiet yet priceless ministry that they have been doing for years. When Paul writes about them, he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. So Paul, obviously super close with them because he gives Priscilla a nickname. He calls her uh, Prisca here. Um, but we also see that, that Paul thinks what they're doing is super important. He commends them to, to the church. He says, they're, they are fellow workers in Christ. Even though they're not necessarily standing on a stage with him or uh, on a church planning team with him, or uh, he still calls their work super important. He calls them fellow workers in Christ. And we don't know when this happens, but he, he says they even risked their necks for the sake of Paul. So even though these two are not necessarily high-profile, dynamic leaders or preachers, like Apollos in this passage, or Paul or Silas or Barnabas in other parts of Acts, they don't necessarily have a stage or a microphone, a platform or a podcast, or they don't have an online following or their faces on magazines or books. They're just normal, everyday Christians. And God uses them powerfully. In powerful ways, through their generosity, their love for the church and other Christians, their hospitality, their teaching, their model of marriage, and their courage and willingness to follow Christ no matter what, even risking their necks for the sake of Paul and for the sake of the gospel. So let that encourage you today. If you often don't see yourself like some of the people in, in Acts that we've seen so far, Paul, Silas, and others, maybe you see yourself more like Priscilla and Aquila. Let this encourage you. God uses all different kinds of people powerfully. And their, their ministry is not just really great and kind of helpful. It's vital. It's necessary. Right? Think about what would happen if Apollo kept preaching in this city without knowing uh, about the gospel. What would happen if he preached in this city and all he knew was just Jesus' teachings and his life and his miracles? Right? Think about how uh, unhelpful that would be if if he was preaching and no one ever heard about the gospel, about Jesus' death and resurrection. So their ministry might have been quiet, yet it was incredibly vital. The fourth thing that we see or notice when we look at Priscilla and Aquila in their life, notice how Priscilla is mentioned first. Most of the time, I think four out of the six times that they're mentioned in the New Testament, Priscilla is mentioned first. The wife is mentioned first, which is actually... Maybe you didn't know this, but it's incredibly unique and countercultural in Greek culture to have the wife named first. Not only is she named first, but most of the time she is named before her husband, showing that her ministry was incredibly valuable to the church, that she stood out among the people in the church. We've seen Luke, who's the author of Acts, point out over and over again throughout all these different cities that churches are planted and the gospel is spread, Luke says over and over again the significance and the contributions of women in the early church and in the spread of the gospel. And in most cities where Paul has planted a church, Luke intentionally mentions conversions and ministries, services, contributions, generos generosity, and or leadership of women, which would be incredibly countercultural in Greek cultures, Roman cultures, and in Jewish cultures. But Luke wants the reader, and Luke wants the early church to see, he makes a point that we see that this Jesus movement of the first century was not a male-dominated domin movement. And in fact, Rand, uh, Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist through tons of research in anthropology, in archaeology, and uh, studying many ancient texts, he writes about how the early church was predominantly filled with women. So even though the, early, or even though the, the context of the early church in the first few centuries, uh, even though it was dominated by men, partly because they just valued men higher than women, but also because of, uh, they had uh, uh, infanticide. So they, you know, right now we can abort babies uh, just based on knowing the gender 
because of ultrasounds or something, but in the ancient world, they didn't have that. And so in ancient Roman and Greek culture, if you had a female uh, newborn and you didn't want a female, uh, they would kill them. And so in the context of males being very powerful and women looking down on, in, in the context of there being many more men than women, because of that, Luke makes it a point to say, actually, women are, are great contributors to the early church. Professor and author Rebecca uh, McLaughlin writes about this. She says, the status of women was raised in the church in comparison to the, the cultures surrounding it. Paul's inclusion of nine women among the ministry partners he lists at the end of his letter to the Romans is one evidence among many that women played a major role in the spread of the Christian message. We'll actually come back to this later on in the service as well. So we see the, a significance in how uh, intentionally the New Testament writes Priscilla's name in front of Aquila's most of the time in the New Testament. And the fifth thing that we see in, in this great marriage, this, this great partnership in ministry, is that together they privately teach and correct this guy, Apollos, a prominent teacher and eventual leader of the church. So Apollos uh, comes into the city. He begins to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila, when they hear him, when they hear what he is preaching, they realize that he does not know the full gospel. He knows about Jesus, his life, his ministries, his teachings, yet he has never heard of Jesus' baptism. He's never heard of Jesus' death and resurrection. And then this baptism that Jesus gives his followers, we we read that earlier, this baptism that reflects the gospel, that reflects Jesus' death and resurrection and our spiritual death and resurrection when we are saved. But notice what they do. Notice what Aquila and Priscilla do. Instead of getting jealous of this new guy coming into town and being very popular, getting jealous of his success or his public ministry, instead of fighting against his incomplete theology, they gently and respectfully take him aside. They invite him into their home, and they fill in his gaps that he's missing in his theology. They share the full truth of Jesus, not just his pre-cross ministry, but rather the fulfillment of all that, how Jesus wasn't just, which uh, Apollos probably thought that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was actually the Son of God, but didn't hear about the end of his ministry, Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. They fill in the gaps in his theology. So let's look at this guy, this rock star, Apollo, that comes into town, that everyone's talking about, that commands a room really well, that's persuasive and, and really well educated. This guy here, Apollos, that shows up in Ephesus with great influence and excitement. I mean, how not could, how not could he be a rock star? Look at that uh, hair he has there. Thinking of maybe doing the same hairstyle. Kind of like cornrows and a braid there in the back. But anyway, this, this guy, Apollos, he shows up. And we see uh, that he is a guy from Alexandria. So Alexandria is a city in Africa. Uh, a city that was really well known for its library and its knowledge, right? So it's a, it's a city in the ancient world that was incredibly influential, incredibly, uh, yeah, it had this huge library. Um, and then within just a few centuries, some of the greatest and most influential theologians and church minds and church fathers, uh, biblical thinkers actually come from this part of the ancient world and, and many of them from Alexandria, the city in Africa. So not only do we learn where he comes from and why that's important, we also see that Apollos was very learned. He knew the Old Testament incredibly well. And we see that his ministry to the Jewish people was very fruitful because he went to the Jewish people with their holy book. He went to the Jewish people with uh, the Jewish scriptures, or as we call it, the Old Testament, and was able to argue with them and, and refute and persuade them that Jesus really was the Christ, that Jesus really was this promised Messiah that the whole Old Testament was predicting and, and pointing ahead towards and not only was he really smart and knew the Old Testament incredibly well, he was also eloquent. He was a powerful, persuasive uh, speaker. And again, we notice how Priscilla and Aquila interact with them, how they correct him. Verse 26 said, But when Priscilla and Aquila heard 
uh, him when they heard Apollos preaching. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. In just a second, we'll get to see uh, how, or we'll get to see why we did that. But first, let's look at the how for just a few more moments. We see that Priscilla and Aquila privately and respectfully, because they love him, because they see him as a brother in Christ, that is how they correct him. They could have stand up and, and publicly opposed him. They could have embarrassed him by saying, you don't even know the ending of Jesus' story. Or, or you're wrong. Remember what Paul preached. He preached something very different. But they choose not to. They take him aside. They don't call for his resignation. No hashtag about his incomplete theology. They don't start a mob that protests in disgust. How could this guy not know the rest of Jesus' life? How could this guy be so ignorant? They don't do that, but rather in love for a fellow Christian as a teammate who together is declaring the gospel and teaching about Jesus. They respectfully and lovingly correct Apollos' incomplete theology and doctrine. Their motivation was huge. They didn't want to win an argument. They didn't want to look good personally. They don't want to beat him up. Rather, their goal is to help another leader, to help another preacher, for Jesus to get more and true fame. Their motive is not jealousy or disdain, but rather they want Apollos to succeed and flourish, both because he is their brother in Christ and because they see the Holy Spirit using this man in powerful ways. As we're talking about this or just reading this passage, some of you might have thought of Jesus' teaching. Back in Matthew 18, Jesus teaches the church to do this exact same thing. Here he's here, Jesus is especially talking about when, uh, when someone sins against another Christian, but it's uh, related. So Jesus, back in his uh, earthly ministry, taught this. He said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Right? Don't tweet about it. Don't go tell all your friends how this person sinned against you, but go talk to this person by yourself. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he still refuses to listen to them, then go tell the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Essentially, if someone will not repent over long, long, long periods of habitual, continual sin, even when brothers and sisters confront and encourage that person to come back, even when the church does it, church leadership does it, if they still do not repent and return, then you should treat them as they're acting. Treat them as if they're not a believer. And this happens all the time in healthy churches. We see this in Ephesus with uh, Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla, but it also happens in healthy churches in our church all the time. And we don't see it because... It's, it's uh, people are listening to what Jesus is teaching here. They go and they do it privately, right? It's a friend talking to another friend saying, hey, the, the way that you're speaking or acting just doesn't line up with this gospel that you say that you believe. And almost always the Spirit uses that moment of, of, of courage of the one person calling out another brother or sister in Christ, and the Spirit almost always uses that to change that person's heart, and they say, oh, I'm humbled, I, I realize I shouldn't have done that. I repent and, and they come back. And so we don't see it, but this is happening all the time in healthy churches, in our church, in the church in Ephesus as well. The Spirit uses these conversations between Christians, even though they're incredibly uncomfortable and the person having to confront someone else is probably terrified in doing this, but the Spirit uses these over and over again to lead people back to repentance, back to Christ, to restoration, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And the goal of Aquila and Priscilla in confronting Apollos, again, is not to embarrass him or to defeat him, but rather to use Jesus' language. The reason they're doing this is to gain back a brother. Their goal was restoration. And for a church to be healthy, there's the need for the whole body to be doing this. To listen to the Holy Spirit's guiding. And when we see sin and in uh, other believers' lives, to privately and lovingly respectfully ask them about that confront them about that tell them that you love them and that you see how that's inconsistent with the gospel inconsistent with what 
they are believing. Not because we think we're better than them or not because we're hating on them or want them to, uh, to lose, but rather because we love them. We want to see them repent and to be restored. Again, think about the great harm that would have happened in this church if Aquila and Priscilla would have said, I'm not confronting Apollos. Do you see how popular he is? Do you see how great of an eloquent speaker he is? We might bring this up and he might just totally own us in a debate. He might just destroy us when we try to tell them, actually, you don't know how Jesus' story ended. He didn't just teach and do miracles, but he actually died on the cross for our sins and he was raised and he's now ruling in heaven and he sent his Holy Spirit. They could have been scared. I'm sure it began as an awkward conversation, but they chose to do it. So just like the church in Ephesus was incredibly strengthened, and then other churches as well, as Apollos continued, we too, as Christians, need to be doing this. We need to be listening to the Holy Spirit and bringing our brothers and sisters back to Christ over and over again. So yet, even though Apollos, this guy knew the Old Testament incredibly well, and he also knew about Jesus. He, the, our passage said he taught well about Jesus. He knew about Jesus. But the problem was he only knew about John's baptism. So we'll talk a lot more about this next week. It actually comes up in, in greater detail. So I'll just quickly go through it right now. But John was, uh, was a, a minister. He was a prophet. He taught in the wilderness right before Jesus' ministry started. And he called people to baptism. But John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He said, come, be baptized as a sign of you repenting and looking forward to the one that God is going to send. Looking forward to uh, the Messiah. Looking forward to Jesus' arrival. So this guy, John, he baptized people, often called John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. That's what his baptism was about. But Jesus' baptism is much different than that. And so that's why they can say in our passage here today, even though uh, Apollos knew about Jesus and his ministry, he needed the way of God to be explained to him more accurately. He needed to hear about Jesus' baptism and what it symbolizes. It symbolizes Jesus' death and resurrection. Oh, no. I turned it off. There we go. The difference between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism John's was just about repentance and looking forward to the Christ coming, whereas Jesus' baptism is instituted after Jesus' death and resurrection, and Jesus' baptism is symbolic of the actual gospel, of Jesus' death and resurrection, of our death to our old selves and being raised and resurrected in Christ as new creations. So Jesus' baptism is actually a picture and a demonstration of the gospel. So the main point we need to get here is simply that Apollos seemed to know a lot about Jesus's life, even the miracles, even maybe thought that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God, but he didn't know about the most important part. He didn't know about the gospel, Jesus's death and resurrection and this baptism that Jesus instituted and said, all my disciples will do this as a reflection and a remembrance of the gospel. And what was the result? What was the result? Apollos humbly accepted this correction and this teaching, which is a huge win for the church, right? He could have fought. He could have said, no, I know better. He could have argued like many of the religious leaders do when people share the gospel in these cities. But rather, the Spirit humbles Apollos. He accepts this correction and teaching. And then he moves on to preach powerfully in this city, in Ephesus. And then so much so that he now wants to go back to Corinth, back to the city where uh, Aquila and Priscilla are. He probably heard about what God was doing in that city, the city that Aquila and Priscilla were from, and wanted to go back there. So the, the church in Ephesus writes a letter back and says, hey, this guy Apollos, God's using him in powerful ways, and he wants to come back and strengthen the church there, and he does. And Apollos comes up all throughout the New Testament as well. In 1 Corinthians and in Titus, and we see uh, him referenced in, in other places in the New Testament as well. So God uses this small correction by these quiet, just normal Christians in order to fully correct this powerful preacher that God uses in really great ways. All right, kind of to summarize now and see what we're seeing here in Acts 18. As we begin to wrap up, throughout this series we've talked over and over again about what the Holy Spirit is doing. And even though this book 
is traditionally called the Acts of the Apostles or the Actions. So Acts, that's where, I, that's where it gets its name. So we see the apostles, Jesus' disciples, the sent ones by Jesus, uh, Peter, Paul, James, Philip, others, even though we see them do incredible work. The Spirit uses them to spread the gospel, to plant churches all across the ancient world. So even though that is the case, we've been saying throughout this series, in reality, this book should be called, or we should see it as, not, not even so much the acts of the apostles, but the acts of the Holy Spirit. The actions of what the Holy Spirit is doing in powerful ways through uh, his people in the ancient world. So we should be seeing what is the Holy Spirit doing. And ne- nearly every week we mention what powerful and persuasive, uh, empowering acts that the Holy Spirit is doing. How he's using Christians, how he's starting churches, how he's changing cities and cultures. So nearly every week we point out what the Spirit is doing. So I want us to do that again today. Let's notice in the second half of our passage, so after Paul goes back to Antioch and then starts his third journey, I want us to notice what the Holy Spirit is doing. So Paul is gone. So the main character of most of the first half, or yeah, most of the first half of the book of Acts, that guy's gone, right? So the really smart guy, the really uh, courageous guy, and we even know his story. He used to be a terrorist, right? He used to try to kill Christians, and he had this great conversion as well. But, but notice that the main character of the story is gone. So does the story just kind of stop here because Paul is gone? Does nothing happen because the best person, the hero, the strongest guy, the smartest guy is gone? But it doesn't, right? The main character is gone, yet the spirit is still moving. The gospel is still spreading. The church is growing. The church is being strengthened. And I love the, the language that Luke uses to describe the salvation that's happening here. Now, apart from Paul, with, with brand new characters, the same spirits doing the same thing. And this is the language that is used to describe salvation here. Those who through grace had believed. The Holy Spirit continues to move, to open up hearts and minds to believe. By God's grace, many believe. Many are saved. People are believing because of grace. People are believing because of God's unmerited favor towards them. Notice what is not being described at the end of Acts 18. People aren't trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins because brilliant Apollos Apollos has shown up. It's not because Apollos knows the Bible really, really well. It's not because he's such a powerful and eloquent and persuasive speaker. Even though he is all those things, Luke describes what's going on, the salvation that's happening in this city and in other cities, not as Apollos persuaded all these people to believe, but rather people are believing because of grace. It's not about Apollos. Nor are people believing because the people themselves are brilliant or smart. Nor are they believing because they know the Old Testament really well. Or because they are clever and have figured out this thing, this mystery from God that is hidden from them. Nor are they believing because they are ethnically Jewish. They're not believing because their race is the race that God initially covenanted with. But they are believing because of grace. So we see this both declared in verse 27, but we also see this played out in story, in narrative form. We see the same thing. People are saved through grace. If salvation were about works, if we got saved because of how hard we worked or how great we are or our human effort, who would be saved? The powerful, right? If it was about being great and powerful and strong, who would get saved? The powerful. And like we've been saying, in this culture, who are the most powerful? It's mostly men. But we don't see that. We'll get to that in just a second. So if salvation was through works, the powerful would be the ones that earned their salvation, that could earn it. Or it would be the people that are close to God, right? So who's close to God? In the first century, right, uh, symbolically, Jesus, or, uh, the, the temple was where God was dwelling and his actual presence was in the inside of this temple. So if salvation was by works, then the powerful and those people close to God's presence, so people in Jerusalem, those would be the people that are saved, right? But if you've read any of the New Testament, 
or if you've been around here for Acts, or even just here today, we see that's not the case, right? But rather, salvation is through grace. So we see it declared in verse 27. We see it played out in story as well. Since salvation is through grace, it's not the powerful that are coming to Christ that are believing, but it's rather the weak. In our story here, we see uh, Aquila, I'm sorry, Priscilla. And we know throughout this story, we see children, slaves, the disabled, the poor being brought to Christ, being saved. And in our story too, we see it here, it's not people that are close to God that are getting saved, as if working hard or being close to God and gets you saved, but rather we see people who are far from God being saved. People from Europe, people from Africa, hundreds, even thousands of miles from the temple, from where God's presence was. So in narrative ways, in story form, we're seeing the truths and the doctrine that we are saved by grace. We're not saved by being powerful or close to God or great or wise or the right ethnicity or living in the right country or being, of an, or being an important person or deserving salvation by how hard we work. But rather, the Spirit is, un, is saving the unlikely, the overlooked, those on the margins, those who the religious and the powerful of that day overlooked and didn't care about. And the Spirit is not only saving those people, the Spirit is using those people as well. The people on the margins, the people who have been rejected, the people who have been forgotten, who are just, or are just far from the religious center of the day, Jerusalem. And as the Spirit is doing this, he is showing the world that salvation is a gift. It is not earned but it is given. It comes through grace and not by works. In fact, in ancient uh, Greek and Roman thought, free men, so men who weren't slaves, were more valuable, had more dignity and worth than women, and especially more than slaves or children or the disabled or foreigners. And while some of uh, these ideas have fallen out of popularity, still the great and evil sins of racism, classism, nationalism, elitism, and we could go on and on. These great sins, these evil aspects of our of human heart still dominate our culture and our world. Yet Jesus and his gospel of grace stand in stark contrast to these great evils of our day and in our hearts as well. Again, Rebecca McLaughlin writes, Jesus, in his ministry, he elevated women. He valued children. He loved the poor and embraced the sick. The early Christian insistence on brotherhood across racial and ethnic boundaries, even across the, the dichotomy of slave and free, became a spark to ignite a new moral imagination. She continues to go on to say that the, the human rights, the idea of human rights, that all humans deserve to have human rights, doesn't come from other religions, doesn't come from a humanistic uh, worldview, nor atheism, nor Darwinism, but rather human rights comes out of these doctrines, comes out of these values of early Christians that see all humanity loved by God. That people being saved by grace, not by works. The doctrine of all humans being made in the image of God. And the doctrine of God's deep love for all of humanity, loving us so much that he is willing to die in our place. The gospel of grace confronts and subverts these great sins and evils of humanity, of our day, and even of our own hearts. These sins of racism, classism, nationalism, elitism. The early church demonstrated this outflowing of the gospel in confronting all of these. And the early church was made up of, like we've read and talked about, all different kinds of people. The early church demonstrated this outflowing of the gospel, and we see this in Acts 18, played out in one particular story. We see an African and two Europeans, one of them being a woman, not just being saved by grace, not just receiving God's unmerited favor, which they did, but also being used powerfully by the Spirit to build up and strengthen and grow the church. When the main human character of the story, Paul, who is powerful, and who is a man, and who is from Jerusalem, when he is gone, the Spirit still shows up. The gospel still moves forward 
demonstrating that it is not by one's superior race, superior class, superior intellect, superior nation, or superior moral works that someone is saved. Nor is it the reason why the Spirit uses them. It is all by grace. The Holy Spirit saves, not human effort. It is through grace that people believe. And not only believe, but it's through grace that people are used by the Spirit. The book of Acts is full of acts of the Holy Spirit. It is filled with grace upon grace, even as it describes the great work that is being done by Christians and the church to declare the gospel across the entire ancient world. The Holy Spirit is using all kinds of overlooked, unimportant, unlikely people to build his kingdom. And in doing so, continues to demonstrate that it is uh, by grace that we are saved, and it is also by grace that we are empowered and used by the Spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for that good news, that we don't have to be special or important or powerful or smart or a hard worker. Not only we don't need that to be saved, which is the greatest news ever, we also don't need that to be used by you. So God, we thank you for that great news. We pray that it would move from just head knowledge to heart knowledge, that we would see ourselves not as special, but as unbelievably, scandalously loved by you. So we're made in your image. You, you love us deeply. You want to save us. You want to use us for your kingdom and for your gospel. And so God, we pray that we would believe that. And those in this room who don't believe that yet, help them to see your great love for them, and that they don't need to put on a show or put on a mask or impress you, but that in their weakness, brokenness, in, in uh, everything that is seemingly unlovable about them, you still love them. You want them. You move towards them. You want to invite them into your family. Adopt them as your own. So God, help us to believe that for the first time or the thousandth time uh, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.